case file number 1.03, Mimikatz. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. You've had to worry about securing an Active Directory network. Um, yeah. Have you heard of Mimikatz? I have. I remember playing around with this, I think, back when I was going to school for cybersecurity, when I was first introduced to it, and like had a blast with it. I thought it was like a really fun little tool to uh, poke around and uh, use. Well, let me tell you, when it came out in 2007, it scared the tar out of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, given all that I was like playing around with, I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Not thinking that like in a corporate environment, people would be like, oh, God. It really changed, it changed a lot of things. We're going to do a little bit of background before we talk about Mimi Cats itself, because the, the uh, act of hacking Microsoft networking, Active Directory, and NT before it is not a new thing. Mimi Cats just changed the nature of, of what we had to worry about. It, it took a lot of things that we thought we had dealt with and brought them right back up again. Mm, right. So way back in the day, about 1990, Microsoft included server message block into the land manager software that it had developed for IBM and OS2 that it also ported over to Windows. SMB is the... is. You know, we've heard of Samba. Samba comes from SMB. Server message block is the name of the protocol. Sometimes you'll hear it CIFS, which Microsoft just tried to rebrand it not very long after Samba came out. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, I um, remember uh, trying to set up zip shares, stuff like that. But nobody calls it that anymore. Mm -hmm. But way back in Landman days, they had some pretty rudimentary passwords. And so they incorporated it into Windows for Workers, Windows 311 in 92. And they used Landman hashes. Do you know anything about Landman hashes? The old LM hashes? I remember learning about this in college, like how completely insecure the hashes were. I oh, there was um, there's a tool called Oakcrack or something like that. Loftcrack. Loftcrack. Yeah, yeah. I remember doing that with Landman hashes, and it was okay. was it like 64 bits? So the thing is that every seven character chunk, or so you had a password every seven characters it would make into a block. So you, the hash that you had to break was never more than seven characters. That's long. right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I don't have the exact... Uh, I, there's a table that's actually pretty easy to find on the bits of randomness versus which character sets you're looking for. It's kind of the easiest to explain case when you're getting into password cracking. And in fact, as that pretty easy to explain case, because they're no longer than seven characters, you can do what is usually referred to as an exhaustive pre-computed attack, which is taking every combination and basically trading storage for CPU cycles. So instead of making the computer generate them, you just save them. Okay. 
Well, you, you know ShmooCon that's, you know, that's in D.C., right? Yeah. One of the things that the Shmoo group did was they computed a um, rainbow. So the, these pre-computed tables are called rainbow tables. Okay, I was just going to ask, are these, are these different, the rainbow tables or not? No, they are rainbow tables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the Shmoo group computed the entire printable character set of every possible Landman hash. <laughs> and you can actually get a torrent of it. It's about 34 and a half gigs compressed. I think I've probably downloaded that at one point. You may very well have. And the reason for the 14 character specification that we see in so many password policies is actually to uh, make sure that somebody who got a hold of one of these hashes would have to crack two of them. Right. <laughs> that and the thing is, we have better hashes now. In fact, one of the big problems for a long time in securing a domain in the NT4 early Windows 2000 days was disabling landman hashes from being stored in the SAM file. Mm -hmm. And so some of the big things that you'd have to do were secure the SAM file and the backups of the SAM file, as it turns out. And then there was a bunch of techniques uh, back in those days of being able to disclose hashes using anonymous shares. So if you weren't authenticated to the domain, but had the ability to connect to the SMB uh, shares, you could make a connection to the IPC share. And that's actually how a lot of stuff that is authenticated works. Right. And you could use various mechanisms to be able to see the password hashes. Really? And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and once you did, you could go ahead and crack them. Yeah. So the thing is, you don't need to necessarily crack the hash. You can pass it. If you have the hash, you can use it in connections. Now, with Landman, you could just basically replay the hash straight. You could just, oh, I have the hash, I will use it. If you captured the traffic, you won the video game. So they went to this thing called NTLM. The LM in all of these things is, is actually Landman. This is NT Landman. And NTLM version one did client level verification. Instead of passing the hash, you would, it would give you a, a value, a nonce value. Uh, nonce means only once. It's used in a lot of cryptography to you produce a value that isn't reused, that is somehow signed or encrypted using a, a secret the client only only the client knows in order to validate that the client exists. You've probably heard this. Um, just making sure we explain it to the listeners. <laughs> um, so they, they send out this nonce value and you encrypt it uh, using I'm using DES actually. Oh, just plain does? Yeah. Uh, in NTLM1, it was using DES. <laughs> Super secure. So they did this with the challenge response to validate the, uh, the other end of the connection. So if you capture the SMB traffic, you only got the signed value. You didn't get the hash itself. Mm, okay. Okay. So improvement. Yeah. Baby well, steps. Well, yes. No, actually, I, that was probably the biggest leap. So NTLM version 1, from a functional point of view, was very chatty. And... The crypto was weak, and it turns out that the crypto, the weak crypto, was also related to the reason that PPTP, uh, the Microsoft VPN protocol, was broken pretty conclusively in 2012. Uh, a hacker named Mark, Moxie Marlin Spike uh, figured out that the mechanism they were using for doing some of this hashing stuff was actually quite weak, oh, okay. and uh, set up an FPGA machine. And this is still available now. I'll probably put in the show notes the link to it. Uh, if you have the hash to to, to uh, break, you can pay them and and uh, and they'll run it through their their cracker for 24 hours and they will break your hash. I love them. Uh, so we moved to NTLM version two. Uh, eventually, the challenges, uh, the client challenge uh, 
well, actually, my notes say there wasn't a client challenge in NTLM version one. Uh, it was in NTLM version two, but I'm not sure I remembered that. Uh, I'm, that'll be corrected in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> but part of what they did was it was they reduced how chatty the client was by reducing the number of possible operations from hundreds to like 19. Okay. So they really simplified the protocol. And they also made it so that uh, they streamlined uh, a lot of the connections as well as making the ability to queue requests. It's just lots better. But there is still things that use the older versions of, um, of SMB that are usually like NAS systems and stuff. Um, mm, but you want to get it off of, your, off of your network. But this is stuff that old school hackery used to do. They get your, they disclose your hash um, by breaking into the system using PW dump, using some of the other domain controller replication tools in order to get access to the SAM file so that they actually had access to your hash. Okay. So there was a lot of security measures. One was very, was making it so that you couldn't have the anonymous share for one thing, but there were several other security measures that were put into the SAM file. I, I do like all of the hidden things Windows does that you don't know about. It wasn't until um, I think maybe three or four years ago I learned that there's a hidden admin account on like Windows, I think it was Windows 10, Windows 7 that I, I never knew about. And I was just poking around one time and I was like, what is, like I renamed the local admin account. What is this other admin? And they're like, oh yeah, no, it's just a hidden one. Like, thanks guys. Yes. Yeah. Well, so we get down to Mimi Cats. In 2007, a French hacker named Benjamin Delpy was messing around with Windows authentication stuff and, and started writing Mimi Cats. And part of the reason why it didn't really make the, as big a splash as you might have expected right then in the security world is because, well, he's French and all of his <laughs> notes and stuff were in French. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. We, we, are, we are not really known is. to be very good linguists. Yeah, well, we're, I, I think we're getting a little bit better. Some of this, and there have been some stuff, in fact, uh, one of a previous episode, there was a lot of really good stuff that came out of a hacker convention in Argentina. And so we're seeing some really good work by folks that aren't doing English-speaking conventions. Mm -hmm. um, the Chaos Communication Congress in Germany, I think that a lot of presentations there are in German, if I recall correctly. Uh, I usually only read the white papers, so... Right. Uh, but so we're getting a little bit better about looking looking outside of uh, just the English speaking world, but we weren't always that way. And in 2007, we certainly weren't. <laughs> so it interacts with the locums, local security authority subsystem, the LSAS system, which okay. of great fame, and it needs system or admin privileges to operate. But what it can do is pull the password hashes that are stored in memory. The thing about Windows is it doesn't remove those things from memory unless you're rebooting the system. So mm. anybody who's logged into a system that Mimi Cats affects, those password hatches are, you can expect those to be exposed. Right. And it turns out that detection isn't as good as it should be, uh, at least according to adsecurity.org. Sean Metcalf is the guy who runs that, and he's actually a great source for all kinds of active directory security stuff. He did some testing in some of the articles I was reading where he changed just some of the strings and compiled it himself. Mm -hmm. And only four of the 54 detections at uh, VirusTotal flagged it. Really? Yeah. No, I mean, not surprising. Now, we say that, but these are antivirus. If you're running an enterprise and you're running host intrusion detection or uh, endpoint detection and response systems, those have some behavioral components and may very well see those interactions with LSAS and flag them. Right. So 
just because it wasn't detected as the malicious file does not necessarily mean that it will run on your system. Your mileage may vary. Yeah, so, using it on a corporate system to play around, uh, not advised. It, yeah, and if you're dumb enough to try, at least compile it yourself and change the training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so as things progress, they actually uh, um, introduced some PowerShell implementations of this. Uh, PowerSploit is what it's called. And they incorporated it into Metasploit as, as one of the uh, payloads. I think I remember seeing that pop up. I never played around with it, but I was, I was curious what it was. Well, and the PowerShell version, if you can authenticate to something and, and run it over a PowerShell connection, you can do it without even running something memory resident. Mm. You don't put the memory image on the system. You just make a bunch of function calls. Yeah. Um, so the system in which you are harvesting from only sees the activity, does not see the binary. Yeah. So now you got the hash. What can you do with it? What do you think? Well, I know you talk about passion, passing the hash. Yes. So what, what can passing the hash get you? If we're talking about AD, and I imagine passing the hash gets me uh, into the system, then if I stole the hash of an admin, and now I have basically keys to the kingdom, especially if they were a domain or a schema enterprise admin. Yes. But even if you have a user hash, you can map file shares and execute commands in PowerShell as that user. You can use that to authenticate to various web application services like Outlook Web Access and SharePoint. Mm -hmm. Microsoft SQL databases that use Active Directory authentication, you can do that. <laughs> uh, all of these things you can use. Um, in, fact, right. in fact, for some of these things, you don't really have any alternative. So the next section in my outline says, wait, does an Active Directory use Kerberos? Well, it does, sort of. Up until Windows 7 and Server 2008, you could not go Kerberos only. It was not possible. Hmm, okay. It is not configured by default. You actually have to go through a fair bit of work to do so. And when you do do that, you basically break printers. You break basically a web applications that rely on NTLM. Mm -hmm. like some of the ones that I listed. Any non-domain systems that use NTLM, like a lot of NAS storage systems, and and NAS, yeah, those NAS systems, so, so, so file shares and stuff. Right. But there's another problem. Kerberos has its own problem. It's a thing called a golden ticket. Have you heard of a golden ticket? I have. I think, uh, would Charlie find that? to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, that's a <laughs> less exciting golden ticket. I want candy. Well, it all depends on who you hack now, doesn't it? Yeah, that's true. To get the actual golden ticket to the uh, Willy Wonka's factory. Yes. His yes. domain. Or just ransom somebody's network for a golden ticket. I mean, however yeah, you get yeah, to the end, the end that you want. Yeah. So we talk about tickets and we talk about Kerberos. You know, basically how Kerberos does its authentication stuff. Mm -hmm. Ticket granting uh, server and all that. Yeah, so you have, you have the Kerberos domain controller, and it, it has a ticket-granting ticket that creates a, which allows the ticket-granting service to sign authorization tickets. So you take your authentication, you ask, you ask them, hey, can I have access to this service? It says, yes, it's on my list. It gives you a ticket that gives you authorization for that service. Right, and they have a uh, time to live, right? Yes. As well have. as, I know, like at least in AD, when I play around with it, um, making sure all the time sync between all yes. your systems is correct is super crucial because I've had so many systems that can't authenticate. It's like, oh crap, I didn't set the time zone correctly. Yes. In fact, 
one places I worked, uh, it was a Fortune 500 that was a fairly early adopter of Active Directory. And it had domain controllers at several WAN connected sites. And a few weeks after our transition, lots of folks couldn't authenticate. <laughs> and the reason was that their workstation elected to authenticate to a domain controller that wasn't on their site. And okay. we didn't have a time infrastructure because this was back in like 2002, 2003, something like that. Right. So that actually encouraged us to get a time infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, as a general rule at this point in best practice world, a time infrastructure is super important, not just for this, although this is a really good reason to implement one, but to make sure that all of your systems are logging at the same time. So when you do incident response with local logs and stuff, all the times match up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's and the nice thing is like significant. In the in the in the virtual world, a lot of times you can have all your VMs just point at the hypervisor that they're sitting on and get their time directly from there. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. At least like in VMware and uh, ESXi, I, I would imagine like KVM and Proxmox. Well, Proxmox is just web GUI on top of KVM. Well, a lot of those other ones have the same functionality. Yeah, I, I generally make sure that I have the uh, time servers set up on all the standalone stuff, but I didn't realize that the VM host could just solve that problem for me. I guess the, that it's that it's making a call via the hypervisor to the local system time anyway. So as long as the hypervisor is getting its time centrally, it's giving the same time to every virtual machine in there. Yeah, I can't without remember. querying the uh, a uh, NTP system or something. Yeah, I can't remember if it requires VMware tools to be on the host. I would imagine by something like that it does. I know you can you can get wonky though because Active Directory likes to uh, be its own time server. Yes. And so if you have yes, those settings originally or else we wouldn't have had the problem we did. <laughs> yeah, and then you have an ADVM who's like, no, I want my own time. Suddenly you can run into issues there. That's actually an interesting thing that I might have to read about afterwards uh, because I would assume that it would just be essentially part of the provided virtual hardware. Yeah. So basically, if you could get a ticket granting ticket, you could authorize yourself for everything without ever having to authenticate, right? Mm -hmm. That's what a golden ticket is. Now, you'd think that it might be hard to make. Well, turns out in Microsoft World and Active Directory, there's a user called CRBTGT, and its okay. password hash is used to sign ticket granting tickets. Gotcha. So remember, you know, a minute ago when we were talking about password hashes and harvesting them, mm -hmm. if you can get the, the Kerberos ticket granting ticket password or password hash, you can make your own ticket granting ticket and you can make it so that it never expires. Because as it turns out, the Kerberos ticket granting ticket password never expires. When this was first discovered back when Mimi Katz was, was new, there was no way to rotate it at all. There is now a procedure that Microsoft has for rotating it, but it is a manual procedure and it's a giant pain. Uh, I think it's a little bit better than, than it was initially, but you have to remember that this has been replicated throughout the entire domain. Once you change the password on the Kerberos TGT user, you have to reboot any system that wants yeah, to. Yeah, I was going to say it's going to have to resign everything, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, yes it will. And, and yeah, I can't imagine the uh, methodology Microsoft to do this is in any way easy to understand. I've read their KB articles and stuff like that, and it just makes me want to shoot myself in the head or hang myself. Like, And this is not a 
Kerberos problem so much. Essentially, Kerberos is doing what it was designed to do. Mm -hmm. The Microsoft implementation has made the um, credentials to create a ticket granting ticket somewhat more vulnerable than they would ideally be. Right. But Kerberos has always been predicated on how secure is your way of generating ticket granting tickets. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things where the design of Kerberos can't help you if you leave your passwords out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In your desk. Yeah. Um, if they give you the tools to build a house and all of the infrastructure and you only put up yeah. three walls, then you're going to get broken into. Yeah. So, Mimi Cats has the ability to grab the Kerberos TGT password hash where it's exposed. Now, it's exposed on domain controllers, both in the SAM file and because the domain controllers have to run the uh, key distribution service, is, is what it's called in Microsoft land. That, that acronym is just KDS, right? I think I've yes. seen that yeah. pop up. Yeah. Okay. And in Mimikatz, not only can you grab this stuff, but Mimikatz 2.0 and later have the ability to just do all of this for you, create the golden ticket and, and use it for you. Mm. Mimikatz has a lot of the pass the hash functionality. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It has a lot of the pass the, ha the, pass the hash functionality for all the SMB direct stuff. You have to do some work that we're not going to get into now for using captured NTLM hashes for web services. Mimikatz mm -hmm. doesn't provide that, but SMB stuff, certainly. Oh, um, okay. So catching this is, in fact, pretty hard. You're, don't, you're talking catching, catching Mimikatz in the act? Well, catching once the, once the hash has been captured and once a golden ticket has been issued and people are using it. Like once oh, to be able to that, see that, like, hey, there's a golden ticket somewhere out on my, on yes. my domain. Yeah, yes. I can't imagine because... To me, I would think it's just, you know, ticket. Like, of course, yeah. of course, it's legit. It was signed legitimately. Yes, it is actually extremely hard to detect. This is, this is on the upper end of difficult things to detect. Mm -hmm. Microsoft did release uh, the Advanced Threat Analytics ATA service, which is supposed to run on domain controllers and can detect golden tickets because they match it basically up to the use because each ticket is not identical. Although some of the some of the easier ways to detect these things, the hacked golden tickets didn't have all of the fields, didn't have perfect structure, so it was kind of easy to identify them. A lot of those have been resolved, but you can detect them behaviorally, or at least they say you can. Okay, like so in the context of hey, if you see this one ticket being used just like a thousand times across the network within a time span, like mm, suspicious. Well, because it's running on the domain controllers, it knows what the real tickets look like. It knows oh, okay. if somebody's used a ticket that wasn't signed by the by the KDC that that a domain controller is. Mm, okay. So it can do some of that stuff, although it only works if the interaction with the ticket granting ticket goes to the domain controller. And there was actually some black hat stuff of some penetration testers showing that you can juke out the ATA stuff if you never interact directly with advanced threat analytics. Oh, okay. And a really good way of doing this is with a thing called a silver ticket, which is like a golden ticket, but it's one level down in the system. It uses a, yes, it uses a ticket granting service ticket using the same credentials, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to interact directly with the domain controller. So you can use services on the domain without interacting with the domain controller. So you will never talk directly to the domain controller. The service that you're using will do some validation, right. but that validation is does not trip the analytics 
system used to identify mm, okay. tickets. So we expect, uh, and it was talked about a little bit in some of the articles I read, that anybody who's using a golden ticket is very likely to have generated at least some um, a silver ticket in order to be able to regain access if their golden ticket was ever compromised. Gotcha. Huh. Uh, another thing that they do, or another thing that you can do, is use with Windows 10 Enterprise, Server 2016, and Server 2019, there is something called Defender Credential Guard, where it spawns a virtual machine that keeps the actual hashes in it. And the main user interactive VM, whenever you ask to do something, it actually passes the request over to the Credential Guard virtual machine. Mm, okay. And makes that request. So anything that's that's exploiting memory to pull out the password hash, it's not getting anything. All it's getting is a pointer that says, hey, look over there. Right, right, yeah. And it doesn't have the ability to look in, into local memory on the other machine. At least not yet. There's been some... <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, there's nothing specifically on Mimikatz. There, have been some, there has been some work on virtual machine to virtual machine memory peaking uh, for various reasons. Usually that has to do with a some kind of flawed implementation and Microsoft's Hyper-V and stuff like that has not generally been vulnerable to these things. Uh, some of the open platforms have had some problems over the years with like the ability to, under certain circumstances, peek in and see private keys. Um, yeah. From the VM VM. Although I can imagine, you know, if, if the Windows system that you've gained access to is, you know, basically the hypervisor for the VM that's storing all these credentials, that seems much more likely to find a path in than if it was just like VM to VM. And uh... Yeah, well, the thing is that both sides, the, the user side and, and the main side, actually, I don't remember. It could it, uh, Thinking about it, it could go either way. If both of those virtual machines were resident rather than the host, the, the host virtual machine, or if the machine that has the actual credentials is the host machine and the user interactive machine is the virtual machine, then the privilege would be would still secure the credentials. Yeah. Huh. This is interesting. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna look into this later. Yeah. So you will occasionally hear, and I'm only going to give you a minute or two of it, uh, why I rant about Microsoft and how they talk about two-factor authentication and stuff, because underneath the hood, there's still a lot of authentication using the landman hashes they haven't secured them in memory and frankly even after you authenticate using your using uh whatever your two-factor is you're still stuck with them passing around the hat or using the hash for authentication underneath the hood right so it doesn't matter well it matters some about at the user level making sure that the that the user has two-factor authentication but the back end doesn't and you're losing half of the protection of multi-factor authentication if you're not actually using it for the underlying service authentication. And they have been doing this. They told us basically that they were entirely fixing it by implementing Kerberos about 20 years ago. I'm still waiting. Eventually. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very, very tiny baby steps. But as far as Windows authentic, uh, or uh, using Windows and Active Directory to authenticate web applications, you mitigate that by using SAML, which is an entirely different discussion um, for authentication rather than some of the native Active Directory authentication stuff, mm. which actually transmits the NTLM hash within the uh, HTTP header. Um, yeah. 
So just because you have a web application doesn't mean you, this is necessarily a problem or that your ability to implement uh, native Kerberos or remove the, the your SMB vulnerabilities isn't possible. Uh, matter of fact, a lot of stuff that is implemented when you're using a lot of native cloud stuff, Azure, Azure AD and, um, and Cognito uh, for, with AWS allow you to kind of get around these things. But it's taken a long time for that technology to be available. And if you're using a legacy app, you're still stuck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the last time I was at a DEF CON talk with Sean Medcalf, the adsecurity.org guy, he does several talks at, at Black Hat and DEF CON. One of the recommendations he gave was, hey, make your Active Directory Kerberos native, make sure everything just does Kerberos. And I asked him if he'd ever seen somebody do that. <laughs> and he said, no, he's never seen it. And I haven't seen it since. We'll say at best, it's uncommon and you really have to put your work into it. If you want to do that, you're going to have to do a fair bit of your own research and probably a fair bit of your own troubleshooting. Yeah. And I mean, if, you know, you set up your domain and, you know, went along the path and now you're like, oh, crap, I should go Kerberos only. The amount of effort and then telling your higher ups who don't want to hear from you ever to say yeah. like, hey, by the way, I need to, you know, restart the domain basically to reissue these tickets. They're going to say, oh, that's cool. You're fired. Yeah, in the uh, on the engineering side, we usually say when you're setting up brand new the first time is Greenfield, and then everything else is, well, frankly, what we usually do. Um, mm -hmm. One of the first things you you learn when you're engineering on your own without a net is that you never get to Greenfield anything. And yep. exactly like you said, you basically only have a shot at doing this if you're starting from scratch, if you're Greenfielding it. If you have to maintain any existing functionality, chances are very good that you're not going to be able to make it work. Yeah, I can't guess how many times I've spent a weekend basically where I realized that a service I had created was either insecure or like it was better suited on a different platform or something. And then I spent the weekend tearing that one down and building one that was completely identical in its place so that when the users came back on a Monday, they didn't know anything had changed whatsoever. That's a neat trick if you can do it. I think I've thankfully managed... my, my my infrastructure is smaller. NASA doesn't yeah. have as many users. So yeah, I've managed to do that trick a few times, but uh, there was a big migration of, of firewall stuff where I was trying the same kind of trick, and it worked eleven times out of twelve. Yeah, <laughs> and you can always fall back on you know if the user comes to you and they're like, oh the website's not working, you're like, oh uh, reboot your PC as you scramble on the back end to like, oh crap, I gotta fix this. It's like, you just bought yourself maybe 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I hope the PC takes forever to reboot. Hmm. Now, some of you listeners may not have heard of the bastard operator from hell. You should look that up. The register hosted the column for a really long time. I might even still be going. Uh, but the bastard operator from hell thing to do there is then switch their login script to something amazingly time-consuming so to buy yourself more time. Yeah, and you know, punish them for asking a question which is the bastard operator from hell thing to do. Push some horribly complicated GPO to their system. And then you know they go and get coffee and go on a lunch break and all this other stuff as you fix stuff. If it's a bastard operator from hell thing, they go on a three-week trip to Tahiti. Yeah. <laughs> so that gives you two weeks to go to the Bahamas instead. You have to make sure that you're not going to the same place as a rookie mistake. And then you have a week to fix it. And then one thing that I don't think you mentioned that I believe... Mm -hmm. This is the thing, is where the name Kerberos came from? No, no. Um, being, being derived from Cerberus? Yes. I'm, I'm a mythology nerd, um, yes. so I've always loved that aspect as well. 
Yes. The hackers can't spell correctly, so it's Kerberos. No, we got we gotta make it cool and exciting. Like how Mortal Kombat writes everything as a K instead of a C. Hmm. There's a there's a conspiracy theory in that Kerberos and Mortal Kombat. I, I could see uh Midway having having some kind of influence. Maybe they were just playing Mortal Kombat at the time they didn't came up with Kerberos. Well it, it was developed at MIT. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway. That's the episode of one of the most important hacking tools there is out there today, Mimi Cats, and all the bad things that you can do with it. Mm-hmm. And if we've inspired you to do anything, it should be go watch Willy Wonka, the original, not the, yes. the new one. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.